The crimes, the criminals, why did they do it? Who got hurt? Did they meet justice or commit the perfect crime? You'll find all the clues at Jim Harold's Crime Scene. Welcome to Jim Harold's Crime Scene. I am Jim Harold, and so glad to be with you once again. And no discussion of crime in America in the 21st century would be complete without broaching the opioid crisis. It has cost our society so much in terms of money, in terms of lives, in in terms of law enforcement, and it has generated a lot of crime. And many these days are putting the blame at the doorstep of pharmaceutical companies, saying that they're the ones who perpetuated this. Judgments have been found, settlements had been made, so it's very much ripped from today's headlines. And we have a very interesting figure to talk to today. I'm talking about Mike Papantonio. He is a trial lawyer, and he says he's a crusader who uses fiction to entertain and inform his readers about some of the most pressing issues of our time. And we're going to talk about his new book, Law and Addiction. And he says in his books, he lays bare the conspiracies and white-collar crimes that hurt ordinary Americans, but are rarely covered by the national media. He's a senior partner of Levin Papantonio, one of the largest plaintiff law firms in the country, and he uses his own cases as springboards for his novels. And he's taken on big pharma, tobacco, weapons manufacturers, and the automobile industry. He is one of the youngest inductees into the Trial Lawyer Hall of Fame, and he is also a well-known media personality. And when he's not doing that, he's a skilled musician and athlete, and he's based in Florida. And I don't know how he has time to do all of that, but he certainly does, and we're so glad to have him with us. Mike Papantonio, welcome to the program. Thank you for the invitation, Jim. Appreciate it. So aside from this book, what has been your involvement in taking on Big Pharma and in relation to the opioid crisis? Where did you come into this picture? We filed the national class. Not it's, it's not a class action, but the national case that's filed up in Ohio, as a matter of fact, is supposed to start trial this next week. I'm not trying that one. I'm trying one in Nevada in 2020. But we filed the, and organized all the lawyers that are you know doing battle with the uh, drug industry. And it's really, you know, everybody calls it, let's use the term narcotics. It's, opioid is a nice way of saying addictive narcotic. And this is an addictive narcotic that's going to kill 150 people today, just like it did yesterday, just like it will tomorrow. And so the reason I filed the case is there was really no way to no way to bring enough pressure and closure to this project without having a national forum that we did that. The attorney generals had dropped the ball so badly over the years. They've just been almost a dysfunctional entity where it comes to dealing with the narcotics crisis in America. And uh, so, so it was time that trained trial lawyers get involved and actually handle this project because and actually do the work for the attorney generals who are seem incapable of taking care of it themselves. I know Johnson and Johnson has been the subject of a huge ruling, I believe, in Oklahoma um, a while back. And I know that Johnson and Johnson had also reached some settlements up here. I'm actually in Ohio and had to reach some settlements. Is it just Johnson and Johnson that are subject to these cases? Are there other companies involved? No, no. The the biggest uh, defendants really are the distributors, McKesson, Cardinal, Owens Corning, I mean, ABC, uh, uh, Marisource Bergen. And so people have missed that about this case, Jim. They, you know, all they heard was Purdue this and Purdue that. And that's just a product of the media 
being so lazy and not really understanding what they're talking about. The Johnson and Johnson issue is, you know, now they've tendered $4 billion. That's, that's not even close to what their liability is in this case. And so what we're going to have to do is just try a series of cases before they get the idea that what they've done is, is really, really bad. And that the only way to correct it is to pay cities and counties back for all the billions of dollars that they've lost paying for things like uh, EMTs and extra police and extra dependency courts and uh, hospitalization and rehab. All that has cost cities and counties billions of dollars. So that's how I brought the case in Ohio to begin with. I had been in Ohio just a uh, year before trying case against DuPont uh, for the C8 disaster that has killed so many people up in the Ohio River Valley. And I was in Columbus, Ohio, trying that case. And I, I just felt like Ohio was the, was the most logical place to bring this case to begin with. So, so, so now, now that it's on, you know, the fight is on. It, I don't see a quick resolution to it. The, de, the defendants simply don't understand the, the scale of harm that they've done to the United, in the United States. So it's going to take a few trials for them to, to understand that. Now, it wasn't, and we talked to other authors about the, uh, as you call it, the narcotics uh, crisis. But up until a point, physicians were very loath to give away strong painkillers, is my understanding. And then something changed. The profit motive came in. Something changed. Can you talk about that? When was When were the seeds of this planted? What happened was uh, you had Oxycontin come out on the market and it, it came out for a very specific reason. And it was to treat end of life, primarily cancer cases. And so they met and they decided we're not selling enough narcotics. So what we have to do is we have to create another need for these narcotics. And what they did is they hired what we call biostitutes. Those are, those are scientists and doctors who will write anything on any piece of literature for the right amount of money. So they went to places like Harvard, Yale, all the, all the silk stocking kind of places. And they got doctors to come out and say, look, we, we've studied this and your narcotic is not addictive. You don't have to worry about it. There's something special about this narcotic and it's not addictive. And it, of course, was a lie. The, the companies had phonied up uh, clinical data to make it look like that. But, and then they, sell, they went around the country selling it to doctors. They, they actually recruited doctors who would, who would say anything for the right, right amount of money. And they would hold meetings all over the United States where they would tell this lie and they would talk about how this is a new narcotic and you can use it without having to worry about your patient becoming addicted. Uh, and then they started even teaching that in medical schools. And the problem is that when you have a myth like that that's created in the medical profession, uh, the, the, the norm is that it takes about 10 years to dispel that myth. And so we're coming up on the time where doctors are finally understanding that they were lied to and that we, they were lied to simply so these companies could make billions of dollars. Uh, kind of a reckless, abandoned way that they marketed the product. So, and let me see if I understand this correctly from your stance. The producers, the people who made this product and market this product, knew it was addictive all along. They didn't care. They just wanted the money. Is that basically right? Well, yeah, I mean, that's exactly what the story is. It's not even, that's not, at this point, depositions have been taken, documents have been revealed. There's not any guesswork. What they actually did here, Jim, is they internalized the illegal use of the drug as part of their business plan. 
the first year, I think, I, I, let's give them the first and second year where they said, well, it wasn't foreseeable that we would have this addiction crisis. That By year three, it was out of control. They actually had a death map that was created by the CDC that showed you from 1999 to 2016, year by year, the number of people that were dying all over the country. And it starts off uh, with it basically white and it's the entire map is red by the time it's over. They understood exactly how many people were dying. And so, yeah, in order, in order to carry out a scheme at this scale, you got to spend a lot of money. You've got to buy off, you know, you've got to buy off people who are willing to say whatever you want them to say. You've got to have huge political influence. You have to have a government that's not willing to do anything, you know, as far as solving the problem. So they had that perfect storm. You know, they had a uh, they had an attorney general in the United States during the Obama administration that, you know, most progressives think, oh, this guy was wonderful, Eric Holder. Well, Eric Holder had the opportunity to close this down for eight years and didn't do it. And all the evidence was right on his table. As a matter of fact, he now is working for one of the, he's working for a law firm that, that actually is defending one of the biggest distributors in the country of narcotics. So he left the attorney general office, went to work with that law firm. So you have to, you know, there's a lot of questions that need to be answered here. And that's what a lawsuit's all about. And the longer this goes, the more questions it'll be answered. I don't think anybody's in a hurry to settle with these folks. I'm not in a hurry. It's going to take several trials. And we've learned that over the years. I think I've handled 30 of the largest pharmaceutical cases in the country, uh, you know, seven of the largest environmental cases, security cases. And so what, what you learn there is that it's very difficult to compromise on something like this. Let's, let's move away. When I make this next statement, this is not just about the opioid industry. This is about corporate America in general. What we've done in this country is we've started treating them differently as far as their criminal conduct because they don't look like criminals. They, you know, they're, they're, they're dressed up in Armani suits. They have Rolex watches. And we look at them, we say, well, gee whiz, they don't look like a criminal. Surely they wouldn't do anything that is criminal conduct, whether it's environmental case and securities case, whatever it is. We have a culture that looks at uh, a, a white collar criminal the same way. And that is that, that they've got, you know, they've got an MBA. They went to, they went to Yale. How could they be a criminal? And then we look at a kid on the street corner that's selling four ounces of marijuana with a hoodie on, and that kid's going to prison for 10, you know, for life. Yeah. You basically just said what I said last week when I interviewed somebody, we were talking, I was talking to a former FBI agent and about sentencing. And, uh, I, I said, the problem that I have is you have this, these people, these white collar, cause I'm very pro law enforcement. I'm the, if you do something, I think you deserve to be punished, but I don't think it should be discriminatory because you have, as you said, the white collar criminal, maybe he defrauds, maybe I think about a Madoff type. And you know, some of these people get off with, going to these minimum security prisons and very light sentences. And, you know, they have community service and they come back and I've changed and I've, they write a book and all of a sudden they're on TV selling their book, doing great. And, and then you've got the kid who, you know, knocks off a liquor store. Not that that's right. He needs to be punished too, but he gets, uh, he uses a gun and gets 20 years. You know, it doesn't make sense to me. You were probably moved uh, in the election as I was with the Obama years. I was moved as Matter of fact, I worked hard to, to get him elected and spent money, uh, donated money, spent time on the airways, you know, being a talking head on his behalf. And the thing that I was most moved by was him telling everybody that 
I'm coming to office. And some of these folks that stole $8 trillion from our economy on Wall Street are going to be punished. And some of them are going to go to jail. Well, you know how many went to jail? Zero. Zero. And so why is that? Well, we, it's because we, we have a culture that's upside down in the way that we look at the criminal justice system. And we have to understand until you take, if you take a company like uh, the DuPont case that I tried up in, in, in Ohio, they, they made a great movie out of it. It's called The Devil We Know. I recommend you, you watch this movie to understand exactly how, what the culture of corrupt corporate entity can be. I mean, how bad, how bad can it be? And when you watch this documentary called uh, The Devil We Know, you get a sense of it. But what has happened is we've somehow talked or we've charmed ourselves into believing that we can't perp walk those guys. You know, that we, yeah, they, they, they've killed people. I mean, up and down the Ohio River Valley. They, they killed them with cancer. They killed them with gastrointestinal issues. They killed them with neurological issues. And we can't perp walk them. And when I was in trial, all the documents were there. It was overwhelming what they had done, but we can't perp walk. And so until we do that, we're going to have another narcotic catastrophe like was caused here. We're going to have another entity, you know, destroy an entire ecosystem like BP destroyed the Gulf Coast. We're going to have another burn down on Wall Street like we saw with the last burn down. And so we have to change the way we're thinking about these white collar criminals. And we have to treat them the same, we, same way we would is with a kid on a, with a hoodie on. These people kill people, Jim. Their conduct results in something that's nothing less than manslaughter. When you have an, when you have an environmental entity, uh, a, a chemical company that dumps a toxin in drinking water, knowing that the toxin is poison, but they dump it there because they're trying to save money. And then they're passing all that risk on to the taxpayer. People are going to die. Not only that, taxpayers have to clean up their mess. And why do we look at them differently? I don't, I don't, I don't get that. Um, well, my question is this, because to me, the, the safety net would be your elected officials and the appointees, like you were talking about attorney general, you know, the president uh, appoints attorney general, attorney general can be elected in, in states and so forth. But my point is that should be the safety net. That should be kind of the overseer who says, wait, there, there's, there's something wrong here. Now, how do you fix that? Because Who's watching the watchers, right? Because if <laughs> if the politicians who were supposed to oversee these companies and, and watch out for the taxpayer, if they're corrupt because somebody donated so much to their campaign through different PACs and so forth, how do you fix that? Well, here's the problem. What has happened, we, you know, for example, FDA, you think, oh, gee, the FDA is looking out for this drug and um, they wouldn't let this drug on the market if it was dangerous. Well, nothing's further from the truth. The FDA, whether you're talking about the SEC, the FDA, the EPA, these people have been captured by corporate money. It's very typical in the corporate world to have a regulator, whether it's uh, EPA, FDA. Day one, they're working for the FDA and they're making $150,000 until somebody makes a telephone call to them and says, hey, look, Joe, I know you're working on this uh, this this investigation of our drug and we want to help you. And oh, by the way, when you finish an investigation, we'd really like to come, we'd like you to come to work for us for $600,000. How does that sound, Joe? That's called corporate capture. That goes on every day. It's going on while you and I are talking about this right now all over the country. And it's happening to all of our regulators. And it, it happened all the way to the top. 
with virtually, if you look at any of these cases, it goes all the way to the top sometimes. And, you know, you, you think, okay, well, the attorney general, surely they're going to go after the bad guys. Well, in the opioid catastrophe 10 years ago, the attorney generals of the United States, 23 attorney generals settled the entire opioid case for $25 million. Wow. Actually, no, it was 19, 19, wow. 19 million. And then they declared victory. They then, the next day in the newspaper, you had these attorney generals beating on their chest talking about how extraordinary their work is and how they had accomplished so much. Well, they're frauds. There's, there's, it's, it's, they're frauds. Attorney general stands for almost governor. They're, they're useless where it comes to doing anything meaningful and protecting consumers. So we, we have this we have this idea in our head that is so upside down. And it, it, part of the problem, Jim, is we don't, how do you learn about that? The media, let's talk about the media. Okay, the media in this case, the opioid case, why is the media going to, the media didn't even start doing stories, you understand, until we brought the cases. When we brought the cases, we shamed the media into actually doing something. But before then, the media couldn't, corporate media couldn't do anything. Why? Because they're getting advertising dollars. I mean, they're getting $10 million a month from some of these folks advertising. Turn on your television sometime. Look at, it's every, it's every eight minutes, there's a pharmaceutical ad. What that does is it buys access. Let me tell you how bad it is, Jim. I used to be a commentator for MSNBC. I worked with a, primarily on a show, a fellow by the name of Ed Schultz. Oh, yeah, I remember him, yeah. Yeah, Ed's been a dear friend friend of mine a long time, and I was a commentator for, for Ed Schultz. But there were times when I was on on that programming, and I couldn't do a program because the advertiser would complain that I was doing a show that hurt their product. Great example. I had a case where we had uh, we had arsenic wood. It's it's it, it was is a type of wood that is used mostly for use around piers and something you'd use in the water for a dock or a pier. Well, the industry started selling that as children's playground equipment soaked with arsenic. So I go on uh, uh, a show, and actually this was on a show with, uh, uh, well, used to be my law partner, Joe Scarborough. He's, he practiced law with me for a little while. And I went on his show, and I, I told the story. And the next day, <laughs> they advertised on MSNBC. They were furious. They asked me to come back on the show and apologize. <laughs> I said, no, I'm not going to do that. And so that's the problem with corporate media. We're, we don't even get these stories. Why did the opioid crisis develop for so long without any attention? Because corporate media was making so much money off advertising dollars. Because EPA or, or excuse me, because uh, regulators weren't doing their job because they were captured by the corporate entity. Because even the White House couldn't pull the political trigger because the DNC was getting so much money or the RNC was getting so much money, whoever it is, getting so much money through lobbying money. So it's kind of self-help, Jim. If I didn't bring that case in Ohio, none of this would have even been talked about. I'm getting ready to launch another case on human trafficking that'll be launched. Uh, well, it's already filed again in Ohio. What, you probably asked me why I go to Ohio. <laughs> you have great judges in Ohio. The, the caliber of judges up there is spectacular. And so I file a lot of cases in Ohio because I got a lot of confidence in those judges. So, so at any rate, that's the next project. But you'll see... When I launched that project, that all of a sudden the media comes alive and they say, "Oh my God, this is the biggest, this is the biggest threat we have to humanity," and they've ignored it for so long. 
Why? Because they don't have the discipline to do the footwork to figure the story out. That's part of it. Some of the people involved in the corporate, uh, in the corporate uh, human trafficking or corporations. And so it's all self-help, Jim. It's self-help from my end. I've got to go out and do what I do. And the, the consumer has to protect themselves. In the pharmaceutical industry, I would not even tell anybody, I wouldn't tell anybody to take a pill don't take a pill unless it's been on the market for 10 years at least. And then you've done your own due diligence to go through the internet and find out whether there's problems with it because the the FDA is not going to do that for you. They're not there for you. You make a interesting point because as I recall, and this is a vague memory, but I remember back when the late Mike Wallace tried to do work on the tobacco industry. If I remember correctly, he came up against his own network. <laughs> Probably no, Jim. Our law firm launched the tobacco litigation in America. We right out of Pen- little Pensacola, Florida. We wrote the legislation that launched the national litigation all over the country. So we're very familiar with what happened there. They 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 tried to kill the story because R.J.R. Reynolds was putting so much pressure on them. And had had you not had a couple of people that said, "Look, you know, you're gonna, <laughs> we've got to come forward and blow the whistle." Had you not had that, it wasn't the media that solved that story, Jim. The media did it under duress because they were getting so much money from the industry. And so that's probably the perfect example of what I'm talking about here. So that's what I write about in my books. That's what my book's about. If you pick up Lawn uh, lawn and Addiction, you're not going to see that story anywhere else. That's a story that's ripped right out of the reality of going to court every day on these cases. Why do you decide to write about it in a fictional manner? You know, some people might do a chapter and verse recounting. Is it because, you know, you can wrap more, what Rod Serling used to do this. Can you wrap more lessons in fiction? Yeah, I think people are more interested. People are busy, Jim. They, they're working. They've got families to take care of. They've got a lot of problems to take care of day to day. So if they're going to, if they're going to take time to be entertained, give them a fiction where they can learn the truth in that fiction. They can walk away saying, you know, that's a good story, but I also learned a lot of stuff that I didn't know about the narcotics industry in this country. And I I learned a lot about what the addiction crisis is all about. I learned that the blaming the doctor is a big lie, that blaming the addict themselves is a horrible lie. And there's so much you can pick up in a fiction novel and you can enjoy doing it. And it's sometimes I have, I have a really hard time when a lawyer writes a, you know, it's kind of a, a book about, you know, some great result they got and the backstory to that great result and how important they are. It's, it's called, you know, it's they're patting themselves on the back and people don't want to read that. They want to be entertained. They want to hear what's, tell me this, tell me a good story, would you? That's what I do for a living every day. As I tell, you know, I give opening statements. I, I take depositions. I give closing arguments. Those are, that's all, that's all part of storytelling. And so the, the move to doing these books is, is, is fairly easy, frankly. Now, a wise man once said that 50% of the people in the morning get up to figure out how they can cheat the other 50% out of their money. And, and when you talk about these things to me, it's like, yeah, I, I think there's some corrupt people in corporate America. There's some corrupt people in politics for sure. And then every walk in life and corrupt people in the media. I think sometimes the media kind of holds itself up. We're beyond reproach, which I think is a complete joke. But but my point is, is it even worse than I expect? Because I, I certainly acknowledge there are crooked people in every walk of life, including lawyers, of course, and podcast hosts. But my point is, is it even 
Am I even naive thinking, well, it's some people. It sounds like it's a whole lot more than even even somebody like me would assume. To say 50-50 and <laughs> some people are and some people aren't, that's not really the analysis here in my mind because the people with the power, you see, the people with the power when they're corrupt, that, that negates and nullifies everything else of everybody trying to do right, if, whether it's in the law industry, the medical industry. It's that corrupt entity that you, and you, when you have people that think like sociopaths, I mean, they literally get up and they analyze a problem just like a sociopath would analyze a problem. That is so powerful. When you put money to that, when you put political uh, influence to that, when you put affluence to that, when you put uh, when you put all those things together, that let's say it's let's say it's twenty percent of the people who are corrupt, the impact of it is so extensive that it almost nullifies everybody that's, that wants to look. Don't get me wrong, Jim. Capitalism is the best system in the world. I, I'm convinced of that. It works. But it only works when the whole system works. And when you have that 20% that might be making really bad decisions so they can make more money and damn everybody else, when that happens, it takes capitalism, it turns it on its head. It's no longer capitalism. You know, that's a great point because I'm lately, you know, capitalism is kind of getting a bad rap. People are saying, ah, oh, capitalism is bad. I don't believe that. I consider myself a compassionate capitalist. I want to make money, but I don't want to hurt anybody in the process. I don't know what that makes me maybe naive, but that's kind of my viewpoint of life. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, well, the point of life, and that's the, if we had that everywhere, it's the time that we started treating corporations like people and we said, well, they're, they're, they're a person, they're a people entity. Okay, if they're a person and they break the law, let's throw them in jail just like we would a person. I agree because your point there about the sociopath, you know, I never thought about it this way, but if you think about it, a serial killer, as horrible as that is, you know, the, the, the probably I, uh, little, I think is his name. They just came out. Uh, he's probably the most prolific serial, serial killer, you know, in recent history. I don't know what his victim count was. They estimate 30, 40 people. I can't remember exactly. Uh, and, uh, but it's a lot, but let's say that ex-serial killer. Yeah. And he's a horrible serial killer. They're all horrible, but he's killed 40 people. That's terrible. And he's a psychopath and he has no empathy. And that's a terrible, terrible thing. And I don't want to diminish that. You take that same mindset though, and you put it into politics or the corporate world or something like that. It can affect thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. Just look in your own backyard, Jim. Look in your own backyard in the Ohio River Valley. I urge you to go take a look at the movie, The Devil We Know, so you can see what happened in your backyard. I've done a, a fair number of documentaries over cases I've handled, but that documentary, I think, I think encapsul encapsulates everything we're talking about here. And it shows you what, what, is a, what is a sociopathic corporation capable of. And the book I wrote about that, that was called, uh, that, that, I think I dealt with that issue in a, a book called Law and Vengeance. And part of it, I dealt with part of it in a book called Law and Disorder. But they're all books that are based on real events. <laughs> yeah. This latest one is Law and Addiction. It's a legal theory by our guest today, uh, thriller by Mike Papantonio. Mike, so if people pick up this book, Law and Addiction, what can they expect? Well, I think first of all they'll be entertained, and second of all they'll be they, they will be uh, amazed at how dysfunctional the system actually is. The system that they count on keeping their family safe, they'll understand how dysfunctional that system has become. And they can find it. Everywhere fine books are sold? Right. Well, yeah, Amazon uh, pushes it big way, but yeah, uh, Barnes & Noble also. And, but the point is, 
I'd, I'd urge them to read it. I'd, I'd urge people to read it, not just because it's my book, because it tells a story they're never going to hear anywhere else. Well, it's been a fascinating and chilling discussion. Our guest has been Mike Papantonio. He is the author of Law and Addiction, a legal thriller. Mike, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule today. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate it. And thank you for tuning in to The Crime Scene. Please rate, review, and subscribe or follow wherever you listen. It's so important for us to get the visibility and get the word out about this show. And we're certainly committed to doing this show through the end of 2019, and then we'll kind of see where we're at. So please spread the word so we can keep uh, this going. I think we have some important topics and talk with some important people like we did today. We thank you so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you next time. And in the meantime, be careful out there. Bye-bye, everybody. 